Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As you're, as you're finding John chapter 3, um, I got a text from Will this morning, a little brief video of Midtree gathered and worshiping. And so praise God for uh, the first service of Midtree Church. I think they started a little early because they're temporarily meeting in a pavilion outdoors. And so I think they are trying to beat the heat. So they, they may be done by now. But praise God for, for them. Let's keep them in our prayers. And as you're finding John 3, also let me just remind you, uh, I think Robert mentioned it at the beginning, but would love for you to come if you're a member of Crosspoint or you just call Crosspoint home, would love for you to come to our member meeting tonight. We only have six of those. This is a really important time for us to, um, to update you on things in the life of the church, and we need you. If you're a member and you're in town, we need you here tonight. I hope you'll come. All right, so we've been working through Romans for the past year and a half, and this summer, this July, we're taking a brief break. We've been out of Romans for a few weeks, and in July, we, uh, our plan is to do a short five-week series on Jesus on the Christian life, and we're going to look at different scenes in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching on particular areas and topics of life. This morning, we're looking at Jesus on salvation. And so to do that, we're going to look at the first few verses of John chapter 3 where Jesus has this this incredible interaction with this this ruling Pharisee, a very devout and important man in Israel, Nicodemus. So let's go to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read that and then pray. As I'm reading this text, let's... Let's think deeply. Let's pay attention. Let's, let's read it for ourselves and keep your Bible, your copy of God's Word open on your lap. And then we're going to have a bunch of other scriptures that we read this morning. But I want you to see this for yourselves. And let's put ourselves in this scene and block out all distractions and consider the Word of God this morning. This is what the disciple John records in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born When he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I, had told, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right, well, let's pray. And as I pray... Let's ask the Lord to help us to think deeply about this text. There's, 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 there's two types of people in this room this morning. There's, there's those of you that know Jesus and have been born again, and you need to be encouraged and hear this afresh. And then there are those of us in this room that have not. And, and I pray that this morning God, God would open up your eyes to the beauty of Christ and what it means to be reconciled to him. Let's, let's pray. Father, 
Help me to, to communicate your word clearly. Help us to see this truth clearly. We thank you for our brothers and sisters at Midtree Church. We pray your grace upon them on this first Sunday. Lord, be glorified in the years and decades to come of that church and their ministry. Lord, we thank you for Vacation Bible School this past week and the many children that were in this building hearing words of life. I pray that the seeds of the gospel that were planted in those young hearts and minds would take root and bear fruit and that many of those children would come to saving faith. Lord, we pray for our time in the Word this morning in this series in July on the Christian life. We pray that We'd be instructed and chastened and humbled and encouraged and convicted and exhorted by, by your word, by your spirit working through your word. Lord, I pray that your people that know you this morning would be formed more into the image of Christ. And I pray for my friends that are in this room that do not know Jesus, that this morning that you, by your grace, would call them to faith and repentance, that you would cause them to move from death to life by your sovereign grace. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's three truths that I want us to see in this text on the Christian life. Three truths. The first truth is that salvation is a new life. A new life. Uh, I grew up in Southern California on the Mexican border. I think I think I've told you that sufficiently a number of times. Uh, and I did not grow up in a, in a Bible-believing family. We thought that we were Christians. We were cultural Christians. We went to a mainline denominational church where I never heard the good news of the gospel. We attended regularly. The pastor told stories. He never preached from the Bible. He never held up Christ. And then my older brother, who is three years older than I am, went away to college and became a, a Christian, a true Christian, a born-again Christian in the ministry of the football team that he was playing with in college and FCA, and would come back home and would witness to me during his summer visits and his spring break. And I would get perturbed with him because I already thought that I was a Christian, and I can remember on several occasions where he told me, no, you're not a Christian directly. He said, you're not. You think you are, but you're not. You're a sinner bound for hell. And, well, he was already, we already had a bit of an antagonistic big brother, little brother relationship. And I remember one particular time I was very frustrated with him. And we had a friend who was a, a kind of family counselor. And I remember my mother encouraged me to go see this person. And so I had, a, I guess, a counseling session with this person, and I have this vivid memory sitting in their office, and this person, this counselor was asking me what my frustrations were relationally with my older brother, and I can remember this sentence coming out of my mouth in my frustrations with him and the way that he was witnessing to me, and I said, you know, my brother is getting on my nerves. You see, I'm a Christian, but he's one of these born-again Christians, whatever that means, and he's telling me that I need to be a born-again Christian, but I don't need to be a born-again Christian because I'm already a Christian. I remember that, that sentence coming out of my mouth, probably at the age of 16 or 17. Salvation is not a cultural ethic, not, not merely a set of beliefs or behaviors. In fact, if you did a sort of interview of, of an average man or woman on the street and you asked them what it means to be a Christian, they would probably start with an explanation of what at least they understand Christianity is about in certain beliefs and behaviors. Now certainly, beliefs and behaviors are are a critical component of what it means to be a Christian and live for God. Don't get me wrong. But more fundamentally, more primarily, before it is anything else, salvation is a completely new life. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Many of you are familiar with this verse. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... 
And by that phrase, in Christ, I think Paul is talking about meaning they are saved, they are born again. If anyone is in Christ, believing, trusting in him, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So salvation is is not just the adoption of a particular set of beliefs or a kind of morality. Salvation is a new life. And that's in our text. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 3. When this ruling Pharisee comes to him at night and is asking him, and really it's a kind of social challenge. When we read verse 2, it seems like maybe Nicodemus is being humble, where he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In reality, that was a kind of clear social challenge where Nicodemus is really wanting to get into this verbal sort of dialogue challenge with Jesus. And Jesus turns all of that upside down, doesn't really answer the question directly, but says in verse 3, I say to you, unless someone is born again. Now that is phrasing, that's a that's a. a a word that, that's a concept that would have been completely foreign to Nicodemus. And Jesus turns him upside down philosophically and even theologically by saying that you must be born again. You must be made new. Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 3 is, is, is establishing this beautiful truth in the Bible of regeneration. This word that I think you, you should know. It's a theological term. It means that God makes a person new. It's God giving spiritual life. It's God regenerating. It's God making something completely new. Not just adding on or improving, but making somebody completely new. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he's saying that you must be born again. You must be recreated to be saved, to be right with God. I think this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2, in the first few verses there. Let me, let me read it. In fact, I thought, you know, earlier, you know, I, 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 I get a lot of ribbing about how often we refer to the book of Romans, and we're preaching through Romans right now, and, and uh, I don't, I'm not ashamed of that at all. But I, I thought, you know, there's probably not been a month that has gone by in the life of Crosspoint that we have not read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's, I think, one of the most critical passages in the whole Bible. Let me read the first few verses. Ephesians 2. See this beautiful truth of regeneration, or God's act of giving new life. And that's what salvation is. Paul says in verse 1, You and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is saying there that everybody in their natural state after the fall in the Garden of Eden, all of us have inherited a sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and it has produced in us a standing where we are separated from God and under God's wrath and that's all of us that's what Paul is saying in 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 verse 3 that that type of verse doesn't often make it on a coffee cup or a flowery bookmark but if you understand salvation you have to understand that but then look at verse 4 One of the sweetest verses in all of the Bible. So all of us are dead in our sins, which means not that we aren't physically alive. It means that we are unable to do anything in and of ourselves to bridge the gap between God and us, which our sin has caused. So here we are, unable, spiritually unable, enslaved. Verse 4, but God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to these next words, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So do you see what, I mean friends, this is so clear, it's really quite simple, but it's incredibly deep and important. That, that salvation is not the addition of some set of beliefs 
That's important. That's sanctification. That's going to come next week. But it is the regenerating, transforming, outside of us, miraculous work of God to cause us to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. At its core, it is a heart transplant. It's a dead heart that God takes out and he puts in a new one that now can beat for him. And he, here's the words in Ephesians 2, makes us alive. So salvation is, is a new life. It's, it's being regenerated. And this word regenerated, in fact, is, is a biblical word. Look at Titus chapter 3. We have it on the screen. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Very similar sentiment to the verse in Ephesians 2 that we just read. It says, for we, this is Paul speaking to a young pastor, Titus, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You read that verse 3 and you may think, gosh, that's a drastic uh, presentation of humanity. Boy, that's not me. Well, friends, um, that's, that's, that's jagged language. But, but I think if you really considered your life before you were born again, um, that, that is true of you. you. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And, and I think at the heart of that is we're, we're, we're slaves to making ourselves the recipient of all glory. And we're jealous of other people. We, wanna be, we, want, we want the world to rotate around us even though outwardly it may seem like a kind of moral veneer. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing, here's the word, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So do you see the similarity between Ephesians 2 and Titus 3? We're dead in our sins, unable to do anything. God saves us by making us alive, regenerating us, and giving us a new heart. And this is hinted at. In fact, this is pointed to clearly in the Old Testament. In in the prophet Ezekiel, God is speaking through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel, and he's promising about this new covenant, this gospel that will come through his son. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, about this heart transplant that he will do in his people. And he says, this is God speaking to Israel, and I think he's speaking to, to the people of God that will come through his son. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So do you see how the Bible speaks of salvation? It speaks of it as a heart transplant, a a resuscitation, a, a resurrection, a bringing back to life, a giving of a new heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus when he says that a person must be born again. So salvation is a new life that starts with the giving of a new heart. And with a new heart comes new desires. And with new desires come new abilities. Of course, they're not perfect in this life. Again, that sanctification. But there's new ability to act on those new desires. An unregenerate heart is enslaved and that heart is free to do whatever it desires but it's only free to do whatever it desires and because it is dead and enslaved in sin it will only want to do what it wants to do which is not able to please God it's unable to but a new heart gives you new desires and and I want there's people in this room in fact on to varying degrees it's all of us Even if you're a Christian, you need to be emboldened by this truth because to some degree, everybody in this room, even those of us who have a new heart and a new life, are still in a battle with residual sin. And so when we see this, we see this truth that we now have a new heart that has been enabled. It emboldens us and stiffens our spine and reminds us that God has now given us the ability to say no to those things that once held us back, 
that even may still plague us. Do you see that? Do you see that the, the beautiful mix here of salvation and sanctification? Again, I'm getting ahead. I'm preaching Robert's sermon for him next week. I'm sorry, Robert. You're just going to have to pick up the scraps where you find them. He's in his church right now ministering to our kids. This new heart has new desires. And now, dear one, if you are believing and trusting in Christ, you, by God's work in you and the spirit that now is in you, you have the ability to take God's side against your sin. And that's done in the context of community through God's word with the encouragement of the brothers and sisters. There's a thousand other things that we could say about that, but that's not our topic this morning. Salvation is, is a new life. But notice what Jesus says about this new life, this new heart, this regeneration. It's not just a new individual life. It then allows us to enter the kingdom, look again at verse 3, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in, a little bit further down, he says that you cannot, in verse 5, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So this salvation, which is a new life, is not just about a new heart, it's about a new king and a new kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Well, don't think just merely of heaven or the future or the end. In the Bible, it's, it's much more than that. It's much more comprehensive. It's here and now. Think of it as the rule and the reign of the king. The rule and the reign of the king. And the king is here now. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the reason why he's saying it is at hand, because he is there and he's the king. He says in the next chapter, Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To have a new heart is to have a new master and a new king who is the ruler of a kingdom which we are now a part of. But we are in this kind of already not yet tension in the Christian life where we are citizens of the new kingdom, but we are still living here in this earthly kingdom. And so we live as, as kind of ambassadors in an embassy called the local church that is a representation of the kingdom that is coming, that has been established through Jesus' work on the cross, and that will finally be fully consummated when he comes again. And we live in this kind of dual citizenship where we live in this earth, which is passing away, but we're citizens of a new kingdom now not just then. Why is this so important to understand? Because sometimes, in fact, this was a major theological controversy back in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s. There was a pastor out in California um, who many of you respect very much that I do as well. His name is John MacArthur, and he was one of the great proponents to fight against this very faulty uh, theological error, and it's the error uh, surrounding Jesus' lordship and his saving work. And the, and the error was that a person could accept Jesus as their savior, but not their lord. Have you ever heard somebody speak in those terms? Like, I, I accepted Jesus as my savior at some point, but then he really wasn't my lord until, you know, I don't know, five or ten years later. Friends, I think that's a misunderstanding of salvation. It's not to say that we don't grow in grace, that we don't grow in our maturity, that we don't grow in our ability to fight sin and become more and more like Jesus. Of course we do. But, but there really is no salvation unless Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And, and do, you see, do you see the danger of allowing that sort of gap? That just builds in a system for a kid to get fire insurance when they're little and then just go live it up and sow their wild oats while they're in college and do whatever they want, only to settle down in their early 30s when they kind of want to get their head on straight. Friends, that is a heresy from the pit of hell. That's not the Christian life as it is in the Bible. And I'm not, I'm not advocating some sort of legalistic holy roller. Friends, we all struggle with sin, do we not? But, but, but the biblical view of the new life 
is this life where Jesus is our Savior and immediately he becomes our King and we are transferred, as Colossians 1 says, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his Son whom he loves and we have a new sovereign and a new ruler. June 28th, just a couple days ago, 1989 was my first day at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. And I can remember getting my head shaved in that barber shop. And this was actually before I realized I had this kind of Italian hairy jean on my face and it was before I realized that I could trim my eyebrows. And so I just had this one sort of unibrow across the <laughs> forehead and I looked like a kind of Cro-Magnon link to some false view of evolution. And I shaved my head and imagine if I would have told that upper-class cadet or that captain or whatever superior officer that I was dealing with on that day, well, you know, I'm here, but you guys aren't really in charge of me yet. So I'm just going to bebop around for a while until I decide to take this whole academy thing seriously. Friends, <laughs> that would not have gone well. But isn't that how many people treat the Christian life? Friends, that is faulty fire insurance that will do nothing for you on that day. Jesus is our Savior, and He is our Lord, and He gives us a new heart and a new life, and that's salvation. Some questions to ask before we move on to the second one is, friends, is this how you understand what it means to be a Christian? Is this how you understand it? Is it a new life, or is it merely an ethical set of ideals? Is Jesus your Lord? Is He your sovereign? Does he reign over all areas of your life? In what areas are you in rebellion against his lordship? And friends, to some degree, all of us have aspects of residual rebellion in our life. But friends, the way those things get worked out is through the preaching of God's word, through the reading of God's word, through the life in the local church, through repentance, through forgiveness, through accountability. Friends, now may be a very critical moment in the life of somebody in this room where you realize that there is a crevice and corner of your life that you are in treasonous rebellion against your sovereign. It's no way to live in the king's kingdom. Is your life kingdom focused? Do you center your life around his purposes, his people, and his truth? Do people around you know that you are even part of that kingdom? What evidence could they point to about your citizenship? Is there anything in your life that would identify you as somebody who has a new life? Oh, dear friends, salvation is a new life. Secondly, salvation is from God. Look at Nicodemus' response to Jesus in Verse 4, after Jesus tells him that he must be born again, otherwise he cannot see the kingdom of God, and he's incredulous. He says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't know if Nicodemus is being sort of sarcastic there or if he's really just flummoxed. I, I don't know. And look at what Jesus says to him in, in verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born... So right there, how are you going to be born again is the question I think that Nicodemus has asked. How, how is that? I think maybe with some sarcasm and some hyperbole, Nicodemus is just putting his finger maybe unwittingly on the very heart of the issue. That's impossible. How can I do it? How can we do it? How can you be born again? That doesn't even make sense. It's not even physically possible. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And listen to verse 8. 
Jesus tells him how it comes about. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus introduces this truth about how a person is born again and receives a new life by the Spirit of God, which is like the wind that blows where it wishes. In other words, Paul, uh, Jesus is stripping Nicodemus of any ability to take any credit or to really work his way into any salvation. He's saying the only way that you can be born again is not through your activity, not through your grit, not through your effort, but by the sovereign move of God. Not by your will, Nicodemus, and anybody in this room, but by God's will. In fact, that's what Jesus says. If you got your Bible open to, or not Jesus, but John says in John chapter 1, if you got your Bible open to John still, flip over to John chapter 1 and listen to what John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 says. And this is the account of the disciple John about Jesus' ministry at the very beginning. He says, The true light, he's speaking of Jesus which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. But then he says in verse 13, those people that believed, who then became children of God, something happened to them prior to their belief, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he's saying that even the belief that is necessary for salvation is a consequence of the will of God, which I think is exactly what he's saying here in verse 8 of John chapter 3, that we are completely dependent on God's act outside of us to blow where he wishes to make us new. Salvation, friends, comes from God. The point is clear. A person is not saved. Listen to this. Listen to this. A person is not saved by the freeness of their will, but by the freeness of God's will. And that, friends, even though it may run against our man-centered tendencies, it is good news. Why is this good news? I think two reasons. First, because the center of all things is the glory of God. And when we see salvation in this way, we realize that the center of it is the glory of God. God alone gets the glory for our salvation. It's not something that we agree with him in. It's not something that he is up in heaven wringing his hands with a four-leaf clover saying he loves me, he loves me not about us. No, God cannot be stopped. God will accomplish his will. He will not lose any of his people. Romans 11 verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is the one who from beginning to end accomplishes salvation. A heart is dead and God by his gracious will blows by his spirit on that heart and makes it alive. Friends, this is a picture of salvation in the Old Testament and the book of Ezekiel. God works through Ezekiel and he gives him this vision of this valley of dry bones. And there's these dry bones just kind of heaped. The picture of this graveyard of just a pile of dry bones. And God says, preach to these dry bones. And Ezekiel's like, come again? And that's not verbatim. I'm sort of this paraphrase version. And Ezekiel obeys God, preaches to the dry bones. And as he preaches, the Spirit of God hovers over those dry bones and starts to form flesh on them and makes them alive. Now, why would this strange vision be included in the Old Testament? Because it's a picture of how God saves. And friends, that's important because we realize it's God doing the saving. So none of us that are Christians today can stand up and say, you know what? I was a pretty good guy. God chose me for his team. No! 
In fact, Tyler read it for us at the beginning of the service. Let me read again 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 through 31. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it is, verse 30, because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, not your own intellect. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who became to his wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the first reason is, why seeing this is so important is because the glory of God in salvation is the most important truth that we need to see. God alone can be glorif- is to be glorified in our salvation and he does it from beginning to end. But secondly, and think with me deeply about this, Seeing this actually gives us great hope. Now, friends, no one is unsavable. No one is too bad or too far gone for God. Everyone has the same starting point. Do you see that? Think of that valley of dry bones. Think of that valley of dry bones. And now think of all of the categories that we so... so so wrongly put people in. You see, in that valley of dry bones is the good little church kid who hasn't missed a VBS and has stickers on his shirt for perfect attendance. And in that valley of dry bones is the meth head, the felon, the rapist, the terrorist. All of us are dead. And the good news of the gospel is, is that salvation doesn't come from God choosing good candidates, but it comes by the wind of the Spirit of God that blows where it will, and it blows from every tribe and tongue and nation, people poor and rich and black and white, people far from God, people who grew up in the church, the wind blows where it wills. So that means nobody, nobody, listen to you, some of you have listened to a lie from hell and put yourself in a category of somebody who can never be redeemed. Oh dear friend, don't believe that lie. You're no more dead than the church kid. Their sin is self-righteousness and yours is self-loathing, but it is still deadness. And God can save. And does. And friends, don't think that your desire for your unsaved loved one is greater than God's good judgment and mercy. He is rich in mercy, and he's much richer than you and I will ever be. Salvation is from God. What about just that little phrase before we move on and finish this thing? What about that little phrase, water and spirit? Let me just tidy that up for you. Some of you may have been confused by that in the past. Notice where Jesus says in verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying there? Does that mean that this idea of water and spirit, that there's something else that we have to do to be saved? I'm painting with broad brushes here, but I think there's three general interpretations of this verse in the history of the church. First, some people believe that when Jesus says that we must be, say, we must be, uh, we must be born of water and the Spirit, he's referring to water baptism. And so some people have developed, I think, the heretical and wrong view that you must be baptized by water in order to be saved. I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong for a variety of reasons because the rest of the Bible does not say that. In fact, it directly contradicts that in other places where Paul says that you are saved by faith alone and not by your works in Ephesians 2 and many other places. I would directly contradict the Bible and the Bible doesn't contradict itself. We also read in the end of the gospel where Jesus says to the thief on the cross who repents and believes in him in the last moments of his life that today you will be with me in paradise even though that thief obviously was never water baptized. So I think that just that alone, and we could go into much deeper explanation, just excludes that as a possibility. That's not what Jesus is saying. The second thought that people have offered through the centuries is that maybe Jesus is referring to physical birth and referring to a mother's water breaking. I don't think that's the case. Um, for a variety of reasons, which we won't get too into, but I don't think that's the case. I think clearly what's going on there, and this is foreign to us in English, but in the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, the work of the Spirit, symbolized by water and the washing of water, were often coupled together as one thought. 
In fact, in that verse out of Ezekiel chapter 36, where we talked about Jesus taking out our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, also refers to the sprinkling of clean water by the Spirit. So in in Hebrew phraseology in the Old Testament, water and spirit were really, they're kind of one thought of the sprinkling, the regeneration, the renewal, the work of God on his people. And so although it's foreign to our 21st century ears, to Nicodemus' ears and to a first century Jew's ears, this phrase water and spirit would have been a direct reference to the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, which is really just God's spirit working in us. And so when we read in John chapter 3, verse 5, that we are to be born again by water and spirit, that's just Jesus amplifying the activity of the washing of the Holy Spirit as he makes us new. Friends, the important thing for us to remember is that salvation is from God. A few questions to help us apply this truth. Do you know someone from far from God? There seems to be no hope. Be encouraged. God saves the worst of us. In fact, there are no best of us. We're all the worst. If you're a Christian, where is your boast? Have you really thought deeply about how amazing grace is? Has this produced in you more worship of God, more gratefulness, more humility? 500 years ago, Martin Luther had a church member come up to him after a service And the church member said to Martin Luther, the great reformer who rediscovered the gospel and preached it faithfully and turned the world upside down at the time, the church member said to Martin Luther, Pastor Martin, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? And he said, dear brother, because you forget it week after week. (laughs) We all suffer from the dreaded same disease of gospel amnesia. You, You need to remember this. Has an understanding, one final question before we move on, has an understanding of God's utter grace and initiative in your salvation affected the way that you view others? Friends, when we scan the spectrum of humanity, this should humble us and it should, it should cause us to speak with a redemptive lens about even the worst of people because everyone is made in the image of God and although they are fallen, nobody is not a candidate for God's grace. And so we should view humanity through the lens of the way the gospel does. Third and final truth, salvation comes through Jesus. Let's look at verses 9 through 15 again of John 3. Salvation comes through Jesus. Salvation is a new life. Salvation comes from God, and it comes through Christ the Son. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I told you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14, listen to this. Jesus draws a parallel between an interesting scene in the history of Israel in their wandering in the desert and his ministry, his role, his life. Verse 14, he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what's Jesus referring to there? He's referring to this time, this scene from Israel wandering in the desert. God has rescued Israel from Egyptian captivity. They're wandering in the desert, going towards the promised land, grumbling, Frustrated with Moses and his leadership. And listen to what it says in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to, the ground, to, a, to go aground the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Listen to this. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. In other words, the food that God just, you know what? Start a t-shirt ministry and put verse 5 on a t-shirt and just see how many people buy it. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food or no water. We loathe this worthless food. God, what have you done to us by saving us from slavery? 
then <laughs> didn't sit well with the Lord. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Don't, aren't you glad that you live in a new covenant time when God just seems to not be teaching lessons in this sort of redemptive historical way like he did in Numbers chapter 21? Okay. Because I've said some crazy stuff to God and I ain't never been bit by no snake when I should have been. And the people said to Moses, came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, we don't have time to get into all that that text is saying and all the imagery there, but, but the same means by which he brought judgment on the people, he then lifts that symbol up and says, look at it and you will bring life. Friends, what's that pointing to? Christ. Jesus is, is, Jesus is saying that very thing to us in John chapter 3. He's saying, just as People looked at the serpent who was lifted up, that agent of God's judgment, then was lifted up. So I will be lifted up, and anyone that looks to me will live. Salvation is not just the ambiguous notion of the man upstairs or some other way that athletes ridiculously refer to God. It is specific. It's not just a general ethic that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It comes through the sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus who alone through whom we can be saved. And we must look to Jesus and we must trust in his life on our behalf, who died as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us to remove our sin, to make us right with God, and then to come back from the dead to defeat death, sin, and the grave so that all who trust in him would look on him and live and be saved. Friends, that is the gospel. Not just some general religious notion of God. But God the Son, send, uh, God the Father sending God the Son to die a sacrificial death for his people and then to rise from that grave victorious and then sending the Spirit of God to make alive and give new hearts so that the people of God could look to the Son of God and be reconciled with God the Father. Friends, that's the gospel and that's what salvation is. Friends, salvation is a new life. Salvation comes from God alone. And salvation only comes through Christ. If you're a Christian in this room, you, we should be refreshed and amazed and humbled and should affect everything that we do. And if you're not a believer and you came into this room and you've heard that for the first time, I implore you, I plead with you, I beg you, to look to Christ and be saved and be His. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion. If you're a believer in Jesus, we're all going to stand up in a moment. We're going to come to this table where we're going to receive the bread and the cup. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross that bore our sin. The cup represents His blood that was spilled for us. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and he drank from the cup and he instructed his disciples to, as often as they did it, to remember him. And then Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians instructs the new church, the early church, as often as they gather to remember his work on the cross by taking the bread and the cup and remembering his body which was broken and his blood that was spilled, remembering that salvation is a new life from God that comes only through Christ's sacrificial death. And so this is a kind of family meal where believers 
come together to remind ourselves that this is where our hope lies. And so if you're not a Christian, we're not trying to exclude you or to embarrass you in any way. We're actually trying to love you by saying that we don't want you to do something that you don't yet believe. I mean, we're hypocritical enough. We don't want to compound your hypocriticalness by causing you to come to the table and do something that you don't really believe. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if your hope is in Christ, you're welcome to come to this table with us. As the ushers come to take their places to serve us, let's all stand and pray before we come to the table. Father, thank you for the truth of salvation, for the sovereign work of God that alone can make a dead heart, a pile of bones, come to life. Give us a new king, a new kingdom, a new future, a new eternity where wrath has been removed and joy, an ever-increasing joy, is promised. Lord, I pray that believers in this room would be freshly renewed and amazed by this good news. And I pray that my friends in this room who came in unbelieving, I pray, God, that the wind of the Holy Spirit would blow and cause their dead hearts to come alive. That you would cause those dead bones to come alive and to turn from trusting in themselves, not, not to have perfect understanding, none of us do, we all have questions. We all wonder, Lord, I'm not asking for complete knowledge. Lord, none of us have that. I'm asking that you give them a new heart and a new mind so that they can, even despite some of their questions, turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Jesus alone through whom they can be saved. I pray that you would do that. I pray that the wind of the Spirit would blow freshly through this room, through every unbelieving heart, and make it alive so that they can believe and trust in Jesus. Lord, do all of this for your glory, for the good of your people, as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.